I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 1, the very first verses of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, our series through the month of December as we remember our Lord's coming and birth. The King has come, and therefore hope is here. We only have hope because of Jesus, King Jesus. And He has come. And we're going to see what the New Testament tells us about His coming in the very opening verses. And before I read these for you and you follow along in your copy of the Scripture, I want to remind you what 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us about the Bible. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. Every verse, every word of every verse in the Bible is inspired by a God and put into the Bible for us to profit, to learn, to grow. So even this passage, which at first look, it might be like we're reading through a phone book. How many of you even know what a phone book is? You young ones, you don't even know what that is. It's about as exciting as that, reading this list of names. But I want you to hang with me. I'll read them. You don't have to pronounce them. We're going to learn something about our God from this genealogy of Jesus this morning. Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. And all God's people said, Amen. And aren't you glad you didn't have to read that? Right. Now let's pray and ask God to not only make sense but bring spiritual profit to our hearts from His inspired Word. God, every word, every jot and tittle, Jesus said, is of the Spirit and will be fulfilled. And we're very thankful that the New Testament opens with this list of names 
that leads up to or brings down to the family tree to the birth of Jesus the Messiah. So we need to know something about Jesus' family tree. We need to know not just the names that are hard to pronounce and spell, but we need to know our God. And we want to see something about you, Lord. So open our spiritual eyes. Tune our hearts to be on the same wavelength as what the Spirit of God is communicating through this passage. And we will know exactly what you want us to do with it. Some may need to turn to Christ and believe and receive Him as Savior. Some may need to turn back to Christ if we've gotten cold in our walk with the Lord and our faith. Some of us need to rededicate our lives to just loving you and obeying you. Some of us need to do other business. As you see fit, Lord, speak to our hearts. Help us to obey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so why are we reading a list of names this morning? Why would the New Testament begin with such a uh, um, seemingly mundane, unspiritual passage? Well, you help me here. Well, how many Gospels do we have when we start the New Testament? How many? Four. And they are? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Why does God have four men write different stories of the life and ministry of Jesus when he was on earth? Are they competing? Are they contradictory? Pitch, pick which one you think is the right one? No. All four are the right ones. They are not contradictory. They are complementary. You take the gem of Jesus Christ and you turn it and you enjoy the, that gem from different sides and different angles. And each author, from his perspective, shows us a little different gleam and sparkle of the gem of Jesus. And so when you put all four together, you get the complete, well-rounded picture of the jewel of Jesus Christ. So we should be very thankful God gave us four Gospels, not just one, four. He could have given us 40, and maybe we'll get those 40 when we get to heaven. We get all the other nuances of Jesus' life. But each author has his own perspective and emphasis. So when you read the Gospel of John, you're seeing an author write to the world to say, Jesus is the Son of God. He's deity. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. Luke, writing to primarily a Greek audience, and the Greeks were very big on, on worshiping human, human wisdom, human anatomy and physique. And so Luke, who happens to be a physician in his day, says, I want you to see a man, the son of man, a perfect man, the sinless man. Jesus is the Godhead, but he is the God-man. He is a perfect man. Mark is writing to a Roman crowd, and the Roman Empire was very big on power, strength, might, ruling over people. So Mark says, I want you to see Jesus the Savior as a servant. He's the servant of the Lord. Mark 10:45. the Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now Matthew, our author this morning, is writing primarily to Jewish readers. Matthew was the converted tax collector. You remember Levi, Matthew, Jesus called him. And he was one of the 12 followers of Jesus. Matthew says, folks, you Jews, 
who, as Pastor Josh said, were living before the cross for thousands of years in anticipation, knowing God promised the Messiah. He prophesied it. He, he showed types and pictures of it throughout the Old Testament. They're waiting, they're waiting, they're longing, they're looking, they're, they're hoping. Matthew says, the Messiah has come. I want you to know that Jesus of Nazareth is the promised Old Testament Messiah. He has come to be the King of the Jews. And even beyond that, He will be the King of kings of all nations. But now, if you're a Jew in Matthew's day, and somebody is telling you, believe in Jesus of Nazareth as your Messiah, you're going to want some proof. You're going to need a couple questions answered. If Jesus is Messiah, number one, is He Jewish? He's got to be Jewish if he's the king of the Jews. In other words, he has to be a descendant of Father Abraham. He has to be a, a descendant of the one that God called to start the Jewish race, Abraham. Number two, not only Jewish, but if he's going to be the king of the Jews, the Messiah, he has to be a descendant of David. Because David was the one that God said, I will bring the Messiah, the king, the ultimate king, through your bloodline, David, it'll be one of your sons, one of your descendants. Okay, you want me to believe Jesus is Messiah? Show me that he's the son of Abraham. Show me that he's the son of David. And what do we read in the very first verse of the New Testament? Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And so this is Matthew's whole purpose in writing the book. And when you read through the book of Matthew... If that's in your Bible reading plan this new year, you'll read Matthew and you will find over and over and over and over again phrases like this. That the scripture might be fulfilled. What's the scripture of that day? The New Testament wasn't written yet. So what scripture? The Old Testament. That the Old Testament would be fulfilled. And he will quote promises and, and verses of the Old Testament that Jesus fulfills. How many? It's like 50, right Josh? You're the New Testament scholar. Fifty, he says. All right. It's, it's a big number. Dozens of them. Or you will find this phrase. It is written. And likewise, he will quote the Old Testament and say, this is happening because God, a thousand or two thousand years earlier, wrote it in the Old Testament. And now you see it actually fulfilled in the life of Jesus. So let's look at the genealogy with that context in mind. But I want to ask you, friends, when you read your Bible, whenever we open the Bible at church or at home or Bible study, what should be our number one objective whenever we open the Bible? What do you think should be our, our top priority in reading the Bible? Not a trick question. And you can answer out loud. It's free country. What do you think? What, what should we be looking for or, or trying to accomplish whenever we open the Bible? I'm sorry? Yes, God speak to us so that we get a lot of Bible knowledge up here. We can win the trivia contest, right? We can be Bible know-it-alls. We can... Uh, no. Uh, we don't want to study the Bible just as a book of facts that we can accumulate and cram into our brain and say, oh yeah, I know all the names of the 12 disciples. Oh yeah, I know all the prophecies, or I know all the theology, or I'm the Bible answer man. No, I don't want, I want to grow in knowledge of the facts of Scripture, but only as the means to the end of knowing the God who's revealing himself in the Bible. I want to know the God of the Word whenever I open the Word of God. 
The Bible is primarily given to us to reveal God to us. So even when we're reading this genealogy, our number one thing is, what do I learn about my God? What's he like? What does he like? What does he not like? What's he doing? What has he done? What will he do? What's his heart? What's his will? I want to know God. And he gives me his word to know him. And he chooses to begin the New Testament with this paragraph of names. So what are we going to make, make out about our God from a genealogy? Well, let me give you two. There's many more. You could probably mine out some more nuggets. But let me just give you two. We're going to learn about God's grace and God's faithfulness. What are we going to learn about? God's grace and faithfulness. One more time, class. Grace and faithfulness. All right, that's what you'll be saying in your sleep tonight, I hope, over and over again. God is a God of grace. God is a God of faithfulness. Look at, again, the opening verse. Let's see the faithfulness of God. Why does he list David and Abraham? Well, as I hinted at before, that's what any Jew would want to know about Jesus. If you're going to put faith in someone to be your Messiah, he's got to be a Jew, and he's got to be a descendant of David. So that's why they're at the top of the list, and then they will show up a little later in the list. Why these two men? Because 2,000 years before Jesus was born, actually 2100 B.C., God chose a man out of the country of Chaldea, Ur of the Chaldees. His name was Abram at that time. God chose this man, and this man chose to believe in God, and God said, I choose you, Abraham, to start a new people group. And through you, that people group is going to increase and multiply as much as stars in the sky or sand in the sea. And that seed of yours will grow so great, it will be a great nation. And from that seed will come one that will bless all the nations. Hint, hint, we know who that seed will be. And I will allow that seed to find its residence in a land of promise. Abram, you don't know where that land is now. I'll show you it later, but when you get there, that will be your promised land. And Abraham follows God's command. He believes in God. God changes his name to Abraham. God gives him the miraculous son Isaac, and from Isaac then the rest of the, the Jewish family grows through the centuries. God made a covenant with Abraham. And when God makes a covenant... As people and nations can make treaties and covenants, but when God makes a covenant, it is a binding, official, legal, guaranteed promise of some work that God is going to do. And God, the Old Testament says, is a covenant-keeping God. He's faithful to His Word. A thousand years before Jesus is born, God calls this little Jewish shepherd boy from the hills of Judea. And he's pretty good with a slingshot. And he's very faithful to take care of his father's flock. And he's, he's a believer in Jehovah, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he writes songs of praise to this God. He's pretty good with music as well as a slingshot. And God says, David, I am going to choose you to be the man who will produce the... Uh, a son who will sit on a throne, who will rule in a kingdom, and that kingdom will never end. In other words, a dynasty. It will be a Davidic dynasty. There will always be a son of David who will rule my people, and one day there will be one son of David 
who will never ever end the kingdom. It will go on forever. And God makes a covenant with David a thousand years before Christ. And now Matthew is showing here in the very opening verses, God keeps his word. He doesn't forget his promises. The covenant with Abraham, the covenant with David are going to be fulfilled. Here comes Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. But I want you to notice, secondly, this is kind of the flip coin. The covenant, that's the positive promise of God. But God also keeps his promises that are what we might call negative. Or maybe we would even use the word accursed. And we're going to see one example there. When you look down at verse, uh, what is it, number 11, you'll see a guy named Jeconiah. You see that in your Bible, Jeconiah? That's interesting. He's... uh, He's one of the kings that ruled in Israel back uh, 600 years before Jesus, roughly. He's a descendant of David. David was about 1,000 years before Christ. Jeconiah about 600 B.C. Why is Jeconiah an interesting character to see in this line of the Messiah's ancestry? Well, for one reason, Jeconiah was an evil, wicked abomination of a king. You can read about that back in 2 Kings in the Old Testament. He was so wicked, he was so evil, that God pronounced a judgment upon him. We would call it a curse. It's found in Jeremiah chapter 22. Allow me to just read a little bit of that if you want to jot it down or turn there real quick if you want to. I'm in Jeremiah 22. When the prophet Jeremiah speaks to Jeconiah, his shortened name is Coniah, kind of like Elizabeth is called Liz, or Robert is called Rob. Coniah is the same as Jeconiah. And this evil king, who would now be taken away by the Babylonians into captivity, is pronounced a judged man by God. Is this Coniah a despised, broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast out into a land that they did not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days. For none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. My friend, do you get the import of what God just said through Jeremiah? Jeconiah, you have been so evil and wicked in leading the people of God in an abominable way. God is cutting your, cutting you off. Your descendants will not sit on the throne of David. Uh, that's a problem. Because according to uh, Matthew chapter 1, Jeconiah is in the line of David. And remember, God made a covenant with David. It will be one of your descendants. But Jeconiah is told it won't be one of your descendants. No, sir. You will not enjoy the dynastic rule of your sons. So... What's going to happen here? If the Messiah is a descendant of Jeconiah, then God didn't keep his word when he cursed Jeconiah. But if he's not a descendant of David, then God didn't keep his covenant to David. So how are we going to solve this dilemma? We solve it down in verse 16. And here's here's how God wonderfully, faithfully takes care of that seeming problem. At the very end of the family tree of Jesus, we see Jacob was the father of Joseph, 
the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Notice, of whom? Who is Jesus born of? Mary. Mary. Of whom refers to Mary. And if it isn't clear enough in our English translation that of whom refers to Mary right before it, in the Greek, which is the original language the New Testament was written in, of whom is in a feminine form. It's in a feminine gender, so it can only refer to Mary. Jesus was not born of Joseph. That's why the, the genealogy changes abruptly there. You're going, the father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so, father of so-and-so. You get to Joseph, and it's not the father of Jesus. It's Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born. So here's the answer, friends. God said he must be a descendant of David, and Jesus will be that. But he cannot be a descendant of Jeconiah, and Jesus was not that. Because according to this genealogy, Jesus was not the son of Joseph. So he wasn't physically linked, a physical descendant of Jeconiah. He wasn't a physical descendant of, of uh, David through Joseph. Joseph was just his adopted father. We would call him a stepfather. He, he received from Joseph in adoption the legal right, and so he has the legal right to the throne of David through Joseph, but not because of a biological connection. Ah, but you go over to the Gospel of Luke sometime. Luke chapter 3, Luke has his genealogy of Jesus. And it takes Jesus back to, takes him all the way back to Adam. Because remember, Luke is showing that Jesus is a man, perfect man. He goes all the way back to Adam. He comes through Abraham. He comes through David, but he takes a turn. Whereas Matthew shows Jesus' genealogy from David through Solomon, David's son, Luke will say, David, and then David's son, Nathan. And then the line continues down to Mary. Mary was a descendant of David. Jesus was physically connected to David. He was a biological descendant of David through his mother, Mary. But he had the legal right to the throne through his adopted father, Joseph, who was a descendant of Solomon. So... <laughs> Even what looks like a problem, you know, maybe a contradiction. How is God going to resolve this? No problem for God. He's faithful to keep his promises, whether it's a good promise or whether it's a warning promise, a curse. God is faithful to his word. I'm talking to somebody who's waiting on God patiently for an answer to prayer. Has been a long, long time praying. I'm talking to people who might be asking a question sometimes. God, are you, are you ever going to do this work in my life or my loved one? Been waiting on you. Been claiming your promise. God, are you going to do it? Can you do it? Did you change your mind? Did you forget? God forbid, beloved. God is faithful to his word. I came across this wonderful statement in this very difficult prophecy of Ezekiel as I was reading through this week in my Bible reading plan. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36, 36. I am the Lord. I have spoken. and I will do it. That's a good memory verse. That's when you can mark <laughs> and go back to over and over again. I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it. God keeps his word. 
But my all-time favorite is back in Numbers chapter 23. God is not a man that he should lie. And we have all known people who have lied. And we have all been people who have lied. But God is not a man that he should lie. Or is he a son of man that he should change his mind? And we all know what that's like. People change their minds. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? He will. He does. Because God is faithful. But back in Matthew 1, let's also see something else about our God. Not only is he a faithful God, he is a God of grace. A God of what? Grace. Grace upon grace. Now there's 47 names listed here, including Jesus. How many of those 47 are important people, do you think? How many people? What's that? A good bit. Yeah, you think there are any unimportant people on this list? I'd say they're all important. Or God wanted to record them, and he knows their name. He knows your name. There's no unimportant people in God's world. He creates every person in his image. He loves every person. He wants every person that he creates to be recreated, to come back to him in a personal relationship. That's why he sent his son Jesus. He wants every person named and known by God to be his child forever. That's his heartbeat. There's no unimportant people in God's world or in this list. There's some that are more famous or known than others. Now, 47 people. How many... Let's take Jesus out of the equation. How many sinners are in this list? 47? Well, not Jesus. So 46 out of 47. Yeah, well, well, Jesus gets an exemption there. They're all imperfect, fallen, problematic people. Some of them are re- some of them are saved. Some of them aren't saved. Some of them are really evil and wicked, like Jeconiah. Kind of sounds like some other groups of people I know, huh? Like uh, Living Hope Church, a collection of fallen people with our problems and our faults and our weaknesses. You know, God likes to name and put together and collect some people that are not perfect. You know, if he was waiting for perfect people, he'd still be waiting. But here he puts a bunch of sinners together that... His grace can use and bring something good out of, namely his son. Now, of all these names, we don't have time to look at all of them, but I want you to just look at one category of people in this list that is very uh, striking and very displaying of God's grace. That is his unmerited favor. And ladies, this will be probably more special to you than the rest of us, but for all of us, there are five women in the list that we just read. Five. Well, you'd say the men are outnumbering. Yeah, but for that day and age, and that culture, and that world, for any women to be in the genealogy was striking. It was unusual. Whether it's a Jewish genealogy or any other nation, it really didn't matter so much who your mama was. What mattered was who's your father. You get your name from your father, you get your inheritance from your father, the family business from your father. You know, women count. But most of those societies were very patriarchal. It was very man-focused. But God is going to show His grace and say, I'm not just a God of man. I'm not just a God of of fathers. I'm a God of of making men and women both in the image of God. Genesis 1.26. 
And so he includes five ladies in the family tree of Messiah. And not just any women. Real quickly, notice these women. In verse number three, the first one mentioned is Tamar. If she's not a familiar person to you, then you go back today in your Bible time. Read Genesis 38. Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute so that she can seduce her father-in-law. Isn't that a lovely lady? Seduces her father-in-law because she felt cheated and, and she ends up conceiving. And according to Matthew chapter 1, she bears twins, Perez and Zerah. Perez happens to be the older, so the line comes through him. That's the first woman listed in Jesus' ancestry. Uh, the one who deceives and seduces Judah, the son of Jacob who was promised to be the tribe that the Messiah would come through. Woman number two is also found in verse 5, Rahab. Another wonderful woman from the Old Testament. You read about her in Joshua chapter 2. Right before the battle of Jericho, Joshua sent two scouts into the city of Jericho, and they were housed in the home of Rahab, who was the town harlot. But she had heard about this, this God of Israel and what he had done to get his people out of bondage in Egypt. She had heard enough that she was interested, curious, and then came to faith in Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And she shows her faith, as we saw not too long ago in James chapter 2, when we went through that chapter. She showed her faith through the works. She hid the scouts. She let them out to escape the king of Jericho. <clears throat> and when the walls came tumbling down in Jericho, it was Rahab, the believing ex-harlot, and her family who were the only survivors of that battle. And she was taken into the community of faith of Israel. And lo and behold, she marries a man who's in the line of David. So now Rahab becomes a great, 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 great grandma of Jesus, the former prostitute. Ruth is mentioned at the end of verse 5. Ruth wasn't a prostitute, but she was an unlikely candidate. She was a pagan, idol-worshipping unbeliever in the land of Moab who just happened in the providence of God to marry a Jewish young man. But he died early on, and she's a young widow who then follows her mother-in-law, <coughs> Naomi, in faith to Jehovah and then back to the promised land, leaving her, her family, her country, her idols behind. She now identifies and believes in God and Israel. And lo and behold, she meets a godly man in Bethlehem named Boaz. They get married. You can read about this in the book of Ruth. They give birth to a baby boy named Obed. Obed becomes the grandpa of King David. The fourth woman mentioned isn't even named. In verse number 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. What's her name? We know her name. Bathsheba, you read about that back in 2 Samuel 11, the terrible episode of David's immoral time of taking Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, one of his faithful, loyal warriors, and he took and stole Uriah's wife Bathsheba. When she became pregnant, David tried to cover up his sin by having Uriah killed on the battlefield. And for a year, he lived with that cover-up. 
until God exposed it, convicted him. David repented, was forgiven. Bathsheba gave birth to a boy, eventually a boy named Solomon, who we know well. Was no fault of Bathsheba. She was just a victim of that immorality and deceit and scandal. It was not of her doing. She was a legitimate victim. And I could be speaking to others who have been victims in the past of, if not assault, some injustice or evil. You've been wronged, sinned against, hurt. And that hurts deeply. But here is the hope. God can take a victim and turn her by grace into a chosen vessel. And her past does not have to hold her back from being used and blessed of God, as was Bathsheba. And Mary is the fifth woman, the mother of Jesus in verse 16. Nothing negative about her, obviously, but you have to imagine she lived her whole life with a shady reputation. Because a lot of people didn't believe that story about a virgin. Yeah, right. So she always had that cloud hanging over her. She knew, God knew, Joseph knew, Jesus knew the truth. But she had to be willing to bear that. And God obviously blessed and chose that young, faithful Hebrew teenage girl to be the mother of his son. So what does this say? When God puts these kinds of people in the family tree of Jesus, a former prostitute, uh, a deceiving, seducing daughter-in-law, uh, you know, a Moabitess, a, a former pagan, um, I guess there's grace and there's hope for all of us, huh? What if you found out your pastor's family tree included people like Benedict Arnold, Al Capone, uh, Jack the Ripper, was my great-great-grand, you know? <laughs> Would you really want that kind of a character to be your leader? Or what if that was your family tree? Would you really want people to know that was your family tree? You had that kind of, those skeletons hanging on the family tree in previous generations. Or would you even choose, if it was your choice, would you choose those kinds of scoundrels to be your ancestors? But Jesus did. He chose, by grace, to save sinners, to transform sinners, and even those who were victims of sinners, he chose some really unlikely people by grace. And isn't that how we're all saved? If you're saved this morning, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and it's not of yourselves, Ephesians 2.8. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Or Romans 5.20, where sin abounds. And there's even sin in the ancestry, the family tree of Jesus. But where sin abounds, grace does more abound. <clears throat> Friend, God has great grace. And if he chooses to use us, it's not because we are a great people with great gifts. You know, we're good looking, we're talented, we're <laughs> really valuable. God can't live without us that is not it at all i love the way paul said it to the corinthians in first corinthians 1 consider your calling brothers not many of you were wise according to the world standards not many were powerful not many were of noble birth but god chose what's foolish in the world 
God chose what is weak in the world. God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So we sing praise to the glory of His grace. We're chosen not because we're better than the rest of the world. We're saved not because we earned it or God really felt He owed it to us. No, it's a gift of His grace that He would give us sinners any opportunity to know Him and come to believe in His Son Jesus as our Savior and then to use us in some way to be a blessing. In closing, let me ask you, this passage I think would be one of great hope for people with a past. Anybody here with a past? Huh? Aren't we all? But I'm guessing some of us, uh, our past is our worst enemy when we think of it. Not our best friend. I'm reading through, finishing up a great book, Putting Your Past in Its Place by Steve Byers, a pastor, biblical counselor. This is a great job of helping identify and, and encouraging people who are so haunted by their past. And he, he identifies our past in two categories, which I think are very helpful to process biblically. He, he calls it the innocent past and the guilty past. The innocent past are those people who are struggling and haunted and hurting because in their past they were abused, assaulted, wronged, sinned against, and, and they haven't been able to get past that. And it just has been a ball and chain in their life the rest of their days. And then in the guilty past, there are those who are haunted because of some terrible faults and fallings and failures in their past. And they just can't get past the guilt and shame of what they did. Can they ever move on from that terrible past tragedy, whether the innocent past or the guilty past? And really, friends, whichever side it is, it doesn't matter so much as how we respond to that. In both ways, we respond in grace. We have, in the innocent past, Bathsheba, who would say, why, why did he steal me from my wife, from my husband? Why did he kill my husband on the battlefield? Why? I, I, I didn't ask for it. It wasn't my fault. No, she was innocent. But God, in his grace, could overcome that tragic way her marriage started to David and end up by bringing some pretty good results, namely Solomon and the line of the Messiah. Or Ruth, why did God have my husband die? Why was I a young widow? And therefore had to move to a different country. Uh, she could have become a very bitter lady, but God's grace helped her to see the picture. And before long, she was a mama holding Obed, who would one day become the grandpa of King David. Or the guilty past, do you think David could move on from that terrible, heinous act? It's recorded in Scripture. Everybody knows it was public knowledge, and now it's eternal knowledge. It's recorded in Scripture. Did God ever forgive him? Oh, yes. David repented. God restored him, cleaned him up, continued to use him to write Scripture, to lead the people of God. And his sin did not hold him back. Where sin abounded, grace did more abound. Friends, the... The genealogy of Jesus gives us great hope. The God we're worshiping this morning is faithful, and he's a God of grace. In the Bible, uh, you'll find many names. Um, we can't pronounce them, 
many of them, uh, some of them will meet in heaven. You won't see Jeconiah in heaven, but we'll see many of these others in heaven. You know what? There's another book with names. The book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, seven times, seven times says God has a book called the Book of Life or the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a record of all those who come to find Jesus as their personal Savior. He's the Lamb of God who came to be sacrificed for our sins, fulfilling Isaiah 53 that was read for us this morning. And when you believe in Jesus, repenting of your sins, say, Jesus, you're my Savior. You died for me. I need you to forgive me, my past. I need your grace to save me, restore me. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Might not be in the scriptures, but it'd be great one day to see the pages of the book of life open in heaven and to see your name written there. Let's pray.